Welcome to another episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. Megan McCoy-Jones, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alan. Happy to be here. Great. It's great to have you. You know, we've had um, a couple of previous guests. We had building science represented. We had a builder represented, but we've had nobody from the dealer uh, from the channel. So really, really looking forward to this conversation and, and hearing your perspective. But first of all, let me, let, me get, let me get this out of the way. So how do you like to be referred to as a dealer, a lumberyard, the channel? Like, I don't want, obviously don't want to insult you. What's, That's uh, a what, great question. What's the, pres- what's the pressure? I think, you know, we think of ourselves as a lumberyard, probably first, a lumberyard plus. When I introduce myself, I would tell my mom friends, I run a lumberyard. <laughs> great. Okay. That, that, we will stick with that. That's easy. That's Megan McCoy-Jones, the president and COO of McCoy's Building Supply, a family-owned lumberyard and building products dealer started in 1927 by Megan's great-grandfather, Frank McCoy. He started as a roofing contractor service company and over the years evolved into selling building products to builders and contractors. The family has successfully grown the business to 89 store locations, three distribution centers, and two millwork plants serving Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, and New Mexico. Megan joins me to discuss her family's history and role in the residential construction industry and her thoughts on moving the industry forward. She'll share some fresh and interesting insights on building science from her perspective inside the industry. I think you'll find the discussion interesting, informative, and quite relevant. Residentially speaking, that's coming up. And then, of course, we have not had any women on the podcast. So really, yeah, really interested in your perspective there. So, um, so, so glad you can join us. And thanks for taking time for us today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, really. You bet. So with um, I wanted to get started on for those listeners who may not know the um, some of the history of McCoy's. If I did my research correctly, uh, 19 founded in 1927, your great grandfather, I believe. That's right. Frank McCoy. That's right. Started as a roofing contracting business. It looks like his son, your grandfather, came back from World War II and at some point, and then, oh, they expanded into um, some maybe some roofing supplies. And then um, it looks like in the 50s, as your grandfather started to, you know, get more involved in the business, added, um, what was it, McCoy Supply Company, I guess in the late 40s. And then in the 50s, started picking up wood products and the, kind of the rest is history. So that, that kind of gets us started. How do yeah, you describe the, the history a, of your family? That's a good start. You know, my great grandfather got us into business. He was a roofing contractor in Houston then decided he could go into business for himself in Galveston and moved his family, including my grandfather as a really young boy. Of course, we've been around for a long time. So there's a lot of history, but I think the, you know, the real high, high notes are my grandfather was interested post-World War II in the do-it-yourselfer movement, you know, building products were getting more user-friendly where you didn't have to be well-equipped in welding or uh, sophisticated techniques or have really expensive tools to be doing product, doing things yourself. And it's interesting, you know, there really was a stigma to do it yourself kind of work pre-World War II. Hmm. That would have meant, you know, maybe you couldn't afford somebody to work on your home. And so you had to do it yourself. We don't think about that at all anymore. But um, when that fell away after the war, he was watching a company called Wix 
probably a lot of your listeners would, would remember Wix Lumber. And they were early in the buy direct from the manufacturer model. So they were selling direct to consumers, buying direct from the manufacturer. And it, it really was the early stack it high, sell it cheap kind of retail mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. And he was following that business and had an opportunity to start selling some building products out of the front of the roofing supply company. And I heard him tell the story. He said something like the roofing business was 80% of the problems and 20% of the profits. And so that started making clear that maybe building products were a better way to go. Right. Uh, right. At that point, his father had moved to California, really was a passive owner of the company. And so even though my great grandfather got us into business, my grandfather is really the, you know, that entrepreneurial greatest generation who saw a great idea and hustled for it. He and my grandmother both. And that got us kind of all the way through really, you know, the late mid to late nineties and that your listeners would know. And a lot of people would know when the big box retailers started coming, that model started expanding That's when McCoy's saw a tremendous amount of stress. We were all retail. And then into the early 90s, mid 90s, then the late 90s, as those big box stores came into really small markets, they had already been in big markets. Our business was just clobbered. We would look up and a store was down 50% in sales in two years, you know. I'd read on the website that you all had kind of targeted the, the middle, smaller markets, maybe staying away from the larger um, yeah, we did. still do that or is that, has that changed? It's been a while since we've opened a store in a big Metro. So our, certainly our new stores are growing more often to smaller and smaller markets and mid-sized markets. And we're based in Texas. All our new stores are in Texas. There's a ton of growth in the state. So it's an easy, easier, you know, plan in a state like ours with a huge population growth. And we feel like those markets are really underserved. I was in a very small town this morning in Beeville, Texas, South Texas. We are one of very few options in Beeville for building products, home repair products, even some lawn and garden. And even though the metros have a ton of growth, there's still a lot of opportunity for rural and midsize America. And that's a space we love. Got a ton of compassion for, yeah. Sure. And what was, as you were growing up, you know, when I was growing up, my family for a period of time um, owned a restaurant. And uh, as my parents will tell you, it was the most fun they've ever had losing a lot of money because they had a lot of music involved with the restaurant. But uh, it was a tough business. I remember during that time as a kid, we'd go out to dinner and we'd critique everything in another restaurant, the salt shakers, the tablecloths, right? So as you were growing up in the business, same, were you guys critiquing other uh, lumber yards? My husband would tell you I'm a born retailer. You know, in my pantry, there's two cans of black beans. When you use one, you pull the back one forward and you put the other one on the list and you've got one to show and one to go, you know? So I think I'm born a retailer that way. And the the thing I would add on to that is when you live your life in retail, even complicated uh, professional sales, like we are also in, Mm -hmm. you have to be obsessed with being relevant to your customer. And so customer relevance is a thing I'm really interested in. And you know it, you go places where the customer's first and you feel it, you go plenty of places where it isn't and you feel that too. So that's probably what we talked about more. Definitely my kids will tell you, we talk about that. Talk about that, yeah. (laughs) It's hard not to bring the work home, right? 
and your typical, so your typical customer today is a professional, is a builder, contractor, trade contractor. That That's right? right. So if I pick up that history, sort of mid nineties, late nineties, we had to pivot our business plan because just being a retailer wasn't enough. And we started, my grandfather retired in 1997. We started that next year, opening credit accounts, expanding our delivery fleet. We had at one point only 3,000 SKUs, stop keeping units, items for sale. Now we have 18, 24, 28,000, depending on the store. Wow. We special or, started special ordering. We got into millwork. We've since gotten into distribution. So I think we started realizing to survive, we have to evolve. And my dad in gosh, maybe 2000, 2001, he did what I think was probably the most entrepreneurial thing he ever did, which was to say who we are, who are our target customers and who are they not? And so he laid out our target customers are independent builders. So new home construction, but independent builders, not, not really uh, the national production chains, repair and remodel contractors in the middle whole range of people there and trades. And then still consumers. And our business today is still about a third, a third, a third. It varies by market. That business model is both incredibly complicated. And also when, it, when we execute it well, there's a lot of security in that blend. And so we've start, you know, continued to build out our business model based on those three customers. And how would you say today, like, so in the markets that you serve, you have competition there, maybe big box, maybe not maybe another independent lumberyard? Yeah, we have it all. I mean, yeah. you know, we think about our competitors as anybody who sells anything close to what we're doing. So we have big box competitors in almost every market. We have a lot of really strong independents in Texas and in the country really in building products. We also sell to the farm and ranch community. So we compete with really, really big players in farm and ranch. And then, of course, our industry and building products has gotten even more fragmented with a bunch of kind of what I'll call like strip center specialty sellers. So a roofing supply chain, drywall supply chain, you know, we're competing with those two. And so our laser focus on who is our customer and how do we serve them the very best in the market keeps us from getting distracted at, oh, man, I want to land the huge drywall sale to the high rise. That's not our customer. Mm -hmm. Right. And as you, as you look at your expansion or your growth strategies, like how do you think about growth today? Is it looking for new markets, new product lines? If I look back in time, we got really good at a standardized model. So every McCoy store looked this way and was reliably stocking this, this group of products. Um, what we have been evolving to, especially the last 10 and 15 years is how do we get more nuanced based on the individual market opportunity? So in a store like a store that doesn't have a big box retailer in the market, we have more opportunity to sell more in different things. In a market that does, we might have more opportunity or for example, in a market that has really high-end home construction, we have a whole different line of hardware or depth of a hardware line, fasteners, those kinds of products that can do very well for us in that market that maybe a very rural market that isn't as advanced in products isn't going to have an opportunity to sell. Hmm. And so we're trying to get more nuanced, which means each individual store manager, he or she has to be a student of their market to help support the decision makers back at headquarters. And headquarters has to be nimble enough and responsive enough 
to that feedback to then make good buying decisions market by market. So there's a lot of complexity in that. That's really um, but, interesting. Yeah, and it's what's best for the customer, right? I mean, they need what they need. And when we're at our best, we're listening to all those nuances. Right. And in terms of today's market, like what do you see as the current challenges and trends? Oh, um, I know, yeah, and, and maybe let's hold the lumber pricing discussion for, for just a moment, if we could, because I want to I want to do a deep dive with you on that. But it, obviously, pricing lumber is a challenge today. But what um, what other challenges and trends do you see? that are influencing you guys? You know, I think one of the big challenges, especially on a product manufacturer standpoint, one of the challenges is how do I get my well-researched and developed new product into the field? And if you're McCoy's, the first question is, well, how does that come through distribution, right? I want it reliably, but I don't want too much at one time. So solving that distribution puzzle is the first challenge. That's not new. The other is how do you convince a customer in the field to try that product out. And I have deep respect for the risk home builders and contractors and tradespeople take all the time to run their business. So when we ask them to try a new product because a product manufacturer says it's even better, that's a much harder sell than most people on the product side think it is because there's risk in it that's unnecessary in the eyes of the builder. And so I think that's one of the biggest nuts to crack. Thankfully, I've heard dad say it often, we're selling on the whole higher quality products than we were in the 60s and 70s, right? Most products have evolved. A house has a chance at being a way better home for its occupants mm -hmm. than ever before, which is an advantage. But one of the challenges is how do you get some of those innovations to market in a way that reduces the risk for the builder and realizing for every product category, there are five or eight or 10 people who want you to move their product times five or eight or 10 or 12 categories. And so yeah. it's all, it's just too much. You know, if you're a salesperson or a builder, there's so much to navigate. Agree. I agree. Yeah. It's, I will say, obviously as a product manufacturer, it's, it's tough from our end too, right? It's because of all those reasons you just mentioned. Right. And it's a big world out there. I mean, it's really hard to reach, reach a lot of people. Right. So I mentioned lumber pricing and, you know, one of the things you hear people question and talk about, like, how does pricing work and how do margins work for a lumber yard? When, when prices are going up, does that put more stress on you and your business? Or when prices are coming down, does that put more stress on, on you and your business? Or is it just that when prices are changing fast, that puts stress on the, uh, on the business? Can you walk us, you know, without giving away the, 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 yeah. secret, the secrets of the business? Here? I mean, the answer to all three of those is yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Volatility is stressful because it has different problems on the way up or on the way down. I think most lumber yards are making a decision to either price based on their average inventory or based on the market cost. And there are things to be said about both of those. Uh, in this current roller coaster ride, you know, the market has fallen 70% in 40 days. Wow. It's never fallen this far because it's never had this far to fall. So that's extreme. I mean, it really, I know the word unprecedented has been overused in the pandemic year and a half, and it would be a fitting word for the lumber market in the last eight months, 12 months, even 14. It's really been extraordinary. And so the big issue 
is less, maybe less about whether you're pricing to average cost or pricing to market cost. It is, is everyone doing the same thing? Because if you're pricing to market, you earn more on the way up and you lose it on the way down. And if you price to average, you make it on the way up, excuse me, you lose it on the way up and you make it on the way down. Right. And so as long as everyone's moving in the same direction in your organization, you can survive that situation. You cannot survive it if you have people doing both. That is a recipe for narrow margins and a terrible working capital situation at the top. And that's probably the second piece of it. You can't talk about this lumber market without considering working capital. I think tattooed to the inside of my eyelids has been no matter what, you maintain a strong balance sheet. That is a legacy I was given, a legacy my father was given, a legacy I hope to pass down to the leadership team in the future. I lovingly joke around here. If you don't quit and you don't run out of money, you will figure it out, <laughs> right? Like that's, there's business in a nutshell. Don't quit and don't run out of money. And we're very disciplined about our leverage and about managing working capital. It's why we're not growing by 25 stores a year. We're growing by one or two. Mm-hmm. It's why we're also not, you know, buying up a bunch of companies so that we can go public or launch an equity offering. You know, we don't have that pressure. And so we just get to slow and steady our way to growth in an environment like this. There's an advantage to that, I think. And you serve the states, I mean, obviously Texas, and then the states kind of surround it, right? Oklahoma, That's Arkansas, right. Mississippi. Yeah, we are mostly in Texas. We have 11, 89 stores total retail outlets, business outlets, plus three distribution outlets and two door manufacturing facilities. All but 11 of those are in Texas. It's great to have that background and, and insight on McCoy's. I wanted to switch a little bit, change the topic to building science. I, my guess is we'll spend a little bit of time here, but maybe talk about some other subjects to follow. As you think about building science and your position in the channel as a lower yard, what, what kind of mind share does it get from you? And how do you think about building science? You know, folks like me, like we wake up all day, every day. And, you know, when I'm not thinking about my favorite sports team, I'm thinking about building science and Tyvek or styrofoam, right? So, but I'm sure it's much different for you and that's okay. No, there's no judgment zone here. Um, <laughs> but so how do you think about building science and, and wh- how much it may or may not influence, you know, what you and your sales teams do every day and your strategies? So there was a period of time kind of before I was an executive, I spent a lot more time thinking about building science candidly. And um, I'll tell you some of that. I'm interested in that. I think building a home that can last a very, very long time and begging builders not to take shortcuts that have generational effects on the people living in those homes is important. I mean, it's a duty, you know, it feels like a duty. And when we can support builders trying to make great choices, man, I love it when we get to do that. So I think of building science probably under the umbrella of stewardship that you get, you pull into that home and that's the biggest purchase most of our homeowners have ever made. And maybe they're not going to live there a long time, but God willing, somebody's going to live there for a long time. And so how do we make really good choices about the stewardship of all those resources and labor for something to last a while? Hmm. So I think about it like that. And when I started getting interested in building science, which I am no expert, and you have had genuine experts on this podcast. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to touch being an expert 
um, at all. But I started thinking, oh, this is not going to be hard. You know, you just introduce builders to new products and better methods and they'll take it on. But there are two huge hindrances to that. One is a lot of building science requires affluence of some kind. It requires a ton of margin time to think and retrain a crew, which most people don't have. And in many cases, it requires a premium. It's a premium product. It's a premium. Uh, a lot of times it's extra layers of product, extra flashing that isn't required, some sort of extra process. And it's really hard to appreciate until you've been in the weeds, kind of the everyday builder in trade, how difficult a sell you're asking from them to say, hey, but just just switch up this product. Well, but they haven't, they haven't ever used it. And it's 10% more. And 10% doesn't feel like a lot to you, but 10% over a bunch of different products that go into that home feels like a lot. They don't know how it performs. They, I get you say it's got a great warranty, but how do I know that? I know what I've had callbacks for. I don't know what'll happen when I put this on the roof or when I wrap the house in this or whatever. And so I think it's hard it's hard for a product manufacturer to understand how much risk, how much risk mitigation is required. I know you and I have talked about this. There's a huge gap between the R&D arm of these great technologies and the framer or the roofer. And then, you know, I think one of the big missed opportunities is for us to get all of us, whatever part of the business that we're in, for us to regularly stand next to on the job, the person using the products we make and sell. The more often we do that, the better we're going to be. We're going to make better products. We're going to have better sales practices. We're not going to be selling. We're going to be adding value. And that takes a ton of discipline because no one's going to take you out of your house to get onto a job, but you, nobody. Nobody's going to require it. Nobody's going to demand it. You know, you got like fancy socks on probably and shoes that aren't used to getting dirty. I mean, that's true for us all, right? You have to inconvenience yourself and it's uncomfortable. And I think a lot of times we resist that. I love the idea that uh, building science as stewardship. That's really a pretty powerful yeah. concept. That's, that's a cool way to think about it. I like that. Yeah, and I, I agree that that. I think you've talked about as a cultural gap almost, right? Whether it's men talking to men or, you know, um, Latino culture or whoever might be installing the product versus who might've been designing it or brought it to market, right? They just, there's some cultural gap that often is missing besides just the office worker and the guy in the, in the field swinging the hammer or, or driving the nails, right? Yeah, I, you know, I read a book a couple of years ago. It was the uh, Melinda Gates book called The Moment of Lift. The book is about empowering the importance of empowering women to help change the world. And Melinda Gates writes about one of the chief callings of the Gates Foundation has been this goal that every birth in the world would be attended by somebody. Now, I'll tie this to building science in a second, but just okay. let that sink in for a minute that there are millions of births that happen in the world where that woman is essentially alone or attended by somebody completely untrained. So she talks about the battle to train people in rural villages 
on midwifery, essentially, you know, how to be a midwife, how to deliver babies safely, how to take precautions, how to be sterile, all those things. And she tells several stories in the book about how long it takes to earn the right in a particular culture, years, years and years and years of proving that you care to then ultimately earn the right to start teaching somebody something. And we sometimes think about cultures being like, oh, like the Olympics are on right now, right? So we think about cultures as countries. I'm in the great state of Texas and tons of cultures here. You know, you might as well think of the state as 25 or 35 different little enclaves, if not 300 or 400. And so in building products, if you walk a trade show floor, maybe it's NAHB's show, maybe it's a local show. If you walk a trade show floor, the demographics are much more homogenous than the trades are actually using our products. And I think, and then just dig down in, you know, where I was this morning in Beeville, Texas, that community is not, op- they're not available to go walk the International Builder Show. That is an affluent opportunity, right? You have to be able to take off work. Your business has to be running. You have to afford that. And so there's, I, I think one of the challenges is, man, can we think about the burden and challenge of building science being a cultural question. How do you speak the same language of your framer? How do you find salespeople who look like and sound like and are from the community of trades that you're trying to sell into? It's harder work. But if you think about building science as stewardship, then it's motivating to say, okay, well then how do I do the very best job of stewarding uh, my product that I think really can change housing and change the inhabitants in those houses for a long time. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's difficult, uh, tedious, <laughs> slow work. Like you say, I know that, um, you know, our, our partner that supplies you with Tyvek uh, in your, your part of the world, uh, weatherization partners, I know they've made a concerted push just in the area of language, right. To try to hire only bilingual. It's a small step, but they've they've tried to hire only uh, bilingual reps to work out in the field because it is so powerful. If you can't, I mean, that's the basic, right? If you can't communicate with the person you're trying to train or teach, then it, it's hard to go much further. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's the other thing, right? It's not, um, I know you've seen this, a lot of building science education is kind of a classroom format, online or, gen- or real classroom. And I just don't know a lot of people who choose to build things who also love sitting in a classroom or behind right. a, a screen, you know? Right. So even that little choice is just not, it's not um, relevant is the word I think about a lot because I think about how are we relevant to our customers? Um, that burden is upon us, not them. And so in the same way, how do we as educators in building science, how are we relevant to the people we want to change. And there's a lot of opportunity past the super high-end builders. There's a lot of building science adoption in that space. They can afford it. Their clients can afford it. It's a slower build. They're patient. Uh, Maybe they're not always patient, but, you know, I think they have the luxury of that kind of thoughtful planning and a client who's sophisticated enough to say, I want to pay for that because that's way better. Well, it's a big ask to say, hey, I want you to build this house better for a client who may never know. 
you know, that takes a big dose of humanity to make that choice. And I want us to make that choice more often. I want our team to be in a position to help people make that choice more often. Yeah. But it's hard. That's hard. This concept of stewardship, you know, building science of stewardship, do you think, so I'm thinking of like, what's the risk to a builder of not changing or adopting adopting a new new practice, either product or installation or something like that. So they've been going along doing this, you know, doing this mostly the same thing. And like, what, what do you think of the risk of not moving forward or not, you know, not trying something new? Is there, is there even risk there? Maybe there's not. Yeah. So think about the rhythm of your day. You said you wake up starting to think about building science, right? And after my, after my sports team. Yeah. After sports. Right, team, exactly. Obviously. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> A builder does not wake up thinking about building science. They are waking up thinking, is the weather impacting my schedule today? Is the client going to be on the job today? Did I get the right draw for lumber prices, which have escalated? My point is there is not even headspace all the time. Most of the time allotted to, I would like to try a new product I've never tried. And my crews have never tried. I would like to try that. That seems fun. You know I mean? Ah, that's a huge that's a, yeah. complexity. You're a hurdle. You're asking people to overcome, not because they don't want what's best, but because if you think about the way you move through your day, you have headspace allotted to certain things. If you need new headspace for something, you got to kick something out. Well, what gets kicked out? I don't know. When I, I don't know about you, I have little kids and I get asked to volunteer for things. And my go-to line right now is, I have to say no to you because I can't take that time out of my work life, which means I have to take that time out of my home life. And I'm not willing to do that. Yeah. Right. And so it's the same. You're asking them to take time out of something. And so I think the burden is on us as sellers and manufacturers to somehow prove that we will invest the time first on your behalf. Now, how radical would that, you know, take that in the direction you want? Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Provocative thoughts for sure. Does that, you think that influences then obviously the pace of innovation? It's an element, right? That influences the pace of innovation in residential construction, which we know is quite low, right? At least productivity growth is quite low. When, when we last talked, you had, you were talking just in terms of some capital and margin and earnings and how that might also uh, impact innovation and why there may not be so much innovation in the, uh, in the residential construction space. Yeah. I think building pro I mean, for a long time, core building products have had a very narrow margin. And so, you know, we, we, I think about like, you wake up thinking about building science and sports teams. I wake up thinking about the lumber market when the lumber market's at 250, a thousand or 300, a thousand, it's a hustle to figure out a way to be profitable down there. Yeah. Um, and so that means that when profitability is so narrow in an industry and it is capital intensive because fleet has to get replaced, you need forklifts. There is a lot of labor that goes into delivering building products. When you have big capital outlay and big labor outlay, well, you just don't have a lot left for innovation. So one of my hopes is as building products get more sophisticated, if the margins can grow a little bit, then it can invite innovation in the space that it needs and wants, you know, but 
as long as we are in a tight, tight margin industry, it's hard to have capital to invest in doing something very creative. It just doesn't exist in a lot of places. And then I think we've seen this, and I'm sure um, your audience has too, because a lot of lumber yards are being purchased, there's a lot of consolidation in the building products industry, lumber yards, chains of various kinds, even manufacturers. Well, a lot of that capital, whatever was left is getting spent in acquisition or mergers. It's not spent in innovation. And that has a, a chance at setting our industry you know, further behind. Now I have the filter of someone who doesn't want to be acquired and isn't interested in acquiring. I think if you're an acquirer, you say, Hey, no, this can actually build efficiency and grow. That's just not what I see happen as often. I should probably know the answer to this, but I don't. So I'll, I'll ask you and, and, and uh, see if you know the answer as well. What percent of the, of the channel of the lumber yards in the U S how many are independent? It's the vast majority. Um, I don't know. Do you know? If you mean independent, meaning not publicly traded? Correct. Yeah, yeah, not publicly traded. Um, I don't Probably know. Probably the vast majority. I mean, yes, by count, I would say absolutely. I would, I would assume so, right? Yeah. It would be the majority. Obviously, the really, of the handful of really, really big players, um, some of those are publicly traded and some of them are not, you know? I mean, I think of the top 10, I can think of two of us who are pretty large and still family-owned. Actually, okay. both, both led by women, which is pretty extraordinary. That's right. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, let me let me switch gears here for a minute. We'll we'll go into a little bit of a building science quiz. So, just two questions. Yeah. And so the first one is, you know, given your your spot in the industry here, and you make money selling wood. The first question is, wood studs make up about what percent of the wall system? And then I'll I'll add to that. And would you like it to be more? <laughs> So is it just studs or is that plate through cornice? Uh, studs. Studs only. Let's say mm. studs. Man, I don't know. I would say wood studs as a part of the front, I mean, part of the house, 15%. Not bad. Yeah, about 20, maybe 25, okay. but okay. somewhere in there. Yeah, you got it. The only one reason we, right, we, we follow that obviously because it affects insulation. And yeah, for sure. And so right. Yeah. yeah. So. I've never thought about it about studs only. That's yeah, good. It's about, about like one side, I think one side of a house could be all wood, could be all studs. Oh, okay, sure. Right? That makes so sense. So like three sides insulated, one side right. with just the, the thermal equivalent. Okay, cool. So yeah. That, that's why we like exterior insulation. Yeah. Okay, not bad. You got you got real close. Um, I was thinking you were going to say that you would like it to be like 100% wood. No, I should, I should not confess this on this podcast, but I will confess it here. I, my least favorite building product is drywall. Okay. It damages easily. It yeah. is not pretty. I think there are all kinds of alternatives for walls. Uh, my favorite wall, which you should like this as sort of a continuous insulation kind of person. I got really into the perfect wall concept a okay. number of years ago, and you have smarter people around you to, to know and talk about that but I was interested in how you democratize the perfect wall. You know, there's the perfect wall model that's very high end and then sort of the perfect wall, you know, on a budget. Right. And uh, my favorite. So if I think about um, exposed interior, exterior studs exposed to the interior, 
then my favorite next layer would be T111 plywood. Okay. I love T111. I couldn't tell you. I don't even know why. It's one of the products I've seen in my life from forever. I wouldn't mind giving up drywall and I would replace it with T111. My T111. Okay. All I couldn't right. afford, you know, like shiplap or something. <laughs> so, yeah, I did not have that one on my bingo. So no studs, no studs on the whole wall, but I would probably put plywood up that wall. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. This is a question that actually comes, next question comes from, um, I've heard Mark Liberté talk about this and we had him on, on, the, on the podcast a couple of sessions ago. And he, as he goes around the country, he likes to ask this question. So I'm, I'm going to start asking it as well, because I think it's an interesting perspective. But, you know, from where you sit, like how long should a home last? It's really an interesting question if you think mm. about it. It can't be too short. Maybe it can be too long. I don't know. But how, in your opinion, like what's the perfect length of time a, a home should last? Oh, that is a tough question. Um, so my gut instinct was 50 years. My initial feeling is a home should last 50 years. You should be able to move into it and live in that house till you die. Mm -hmm. No one does that anymore. Hardly, you know, that's not how homes get lived in, but the, okay, let me add to it. I would love to move into a home and know not only what it costs to live in, but what it what it costs to live in, not only what it costs to purchase, right? So the idea that you buy your car with its fuel efficiency sticker and the price of gas may change, but you generally know based on the price of gas, how much you're going to consume driving that car. Wouldn't it be great if we had a similar thing for here is the total maintenance package of your home yeah. and like not just energy consumption, that's sort of easy relative to other variables, but you know, you know, you're going to have to repaint that thing every 10 years or 15 years or 20 or we, we don't have a big vinyl market down here. So that's not on my list. You know, you know, you're going to have to clean out the gutters. You're going to have to mow the grass. You're going to, you know what I'm getting at? So where a home really had a sticker on it, like, tell me what I'm getting into, not just what I can afford to buy. Right. And I think it would drive the size, these weirdly large, but not super well thought out houses that get built. I think it would make them more efficient. And then when you go buying a house, if I'm buying a 30 year old home, it's going to cost me more to occupy that home instead of if I'm buying a brand new home, but it's a little more expensive property. I'm taking property taxes out. That's a major taxing mechanism in Texas. I'm taking that out and I go, okay, maybe I could afford a little bit bigger, newer house or a little smaller, older home. I wish we thought about houses like that. Yeah, I've heard. Um, I, I, yeah, there, there. Obviously, there's no right answer to the question. Yeah. Um, but I think what I've heard Mark say is, as he goes around the country, he tends to get older in the Northeast and it gets younger as he goes west and/or south. Yeah, I believe that's, that. that. That's probably fair. I know. You know, and I'm in the Philadelphia area here in Wilmington, Delaware, and you know, there some homes are 100, 150 100. years old. Yeah. yeah. Right. I and, would. Uh, I mean, I wish that were more true. I think. You're probably grown when you're growing up in that environment, you're around older homes to appreciate their nuance, yeah. you know, and what makes them interesting. And I think if you grow up in the master plan community, you, you aren't looking for that maybe because you weren't around it ever. I wonder if that's part of it. 
It's a real, yeah, it's a really tough, it's a good question to answer. It's a really tough question. I don't, I don't know. I, if I had answered, I think I would say seven, I'd probably a little bit older, maybe 75 to a hundred, but I, don't I know probably if I should wish for answer. more. I should probably right. wish for more. <laughs> well, great. Well, are there any, um, I guess, again, you know, your position in the industry, you, you do see some new products come across and new technologies and so forth. Are, is there anything you're seeing um, on the horizon that maybe has you particularly excited or optimistic about the future residential construction? Yeah, I'll tell you two things. I'm excited that the YouTube generation is willing to take risks in their own repairs. I think that's super exciting. And for a dealer like us, that's an awesome opportunity for them to find expertise, you know, when they walk in wanting to solve their own problem. I'm excited about that in a totally different way. I'm excited about um, their innovations in both philosophy and practice in housing communities who have been really abandoned and neglected. So I work closely with an organization out of Austin that is building essentially a master plan community, lifting people out of homelessness. It's innovative and interesting. It's called Community First, if anybody wants to look it up. Uh, led by an organization called Mobile Loves and Fishes. There are several things like that in the country that really get me excited about our industry deciding to help be a solution provider for ch challenges in housing. So let us not just leave that up to HUD or another government program to solve. I think it's appropriate for our industry to be burdened with finding home for everyone. And I love that that's happening more. I think with that, we'll close. Uh, Megan McCoy-Jones, thank you so much for being our guest today and sharing your thoughts and experiences with us. Thank you. Uh, thanks for asking, Alan. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by DuPont Performance Building Solutions, who provides the marketplace with a full suite of weatherization, thermal, and air sealing solutions such as DuPont Tyvek wraps, flashings, and tapes, DuPont Styrofoam brand XPS rigid foam board, and Great Stuff and Frothback spray foams. DuPont knows the homes you build today will need to stand the test of time, expanding, contracting, breathing, and protecting for generations to come. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap.